and welcome to the second episode of the Legacy of Liberation podcast, brought to you by the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. I'm Glyn Prussell. And I'm Lisa Kellett. This six-part series explores cemeteries and memorials of the Second World War and what they mean to us today. Now we want to hear from you, so please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also subscribe to the series and find out more by visiting our website, which is cwgc.org. This second episode focuses on the Battle of Kohima, which was a major turning point of the Second World War in the Far East. Now, Lucy, in the last episode, we were looking at the Great Escape and we visited Poznan, old garrison cemetery, to see the graves of the people who died. Um, And just before we left, you spotted an inscription that really stuck with you. Yes, well, it was that quote um, from Went the Day Well, my favourite war film, if you recall. Um, The full quotation being, Went the Day Well, we died and never knew, but well or ill, freedom, we died for you. And I was looking into that a bit more, uh, the poet who wrote it, John Maxwell Edmonds, and he actually wrote uh, some of the most famous lines on remembrance, if you like, on on the war that are used in services up and down the country, across the world even. Uh, When you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow we gave our today. And that epitaph is actually formally known as the Kahima epitaph, and you'll find it at Kahima War Cemetery in India, which is one of our cemeteries. was a greatest turning point of the Second World War. It has been ranked That was an old recording from our archive of events to mark the 25th anniversary of the Battle of Kohima. Yeah, I mean, it's it's northeast India, uh, Nagaland, uh, quite a remote spot and absolutely vital in the Second World War in the Far East. So the Japanese uh, had invaded Southeast Asia in late 1941. They, they, they took Singapore, they pushed the British and Indian armies back through Burma into northeastern India. Uh, and so Kohima was really part of, of a bigger battle with, with Imphal. Imphal-Kohima is really one big, one big um, fight in early 1944. And it was vital because if the Japanese had got through, if they'd captured the, the, the British and Indian supply lines between Imphal and Dimapur, it would have really damaged the, the Allied war effort. So, you know, it's really a decisive battle. It's a turning point with the 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 war in the Far East with the Japanese, and it involved people from 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 all over the world. I mean, you've got obviously British regiments there, the Indian Army, the biggest volunteer army the the world has ever seen. Um, but the campaign in Burma involved many more people too. So you've got you know, American pilots, you've got people from Australia, you've got people from Africa, from Western and Eastern Africa. So in terms of the CWGC and the work that we do, really important to remember this part of the war. And, probably a campaign that's not very well known today. I was going to say, it's really interesting given the the breadth of that contribution, as you say, that um, it isn't really part of popular consciousness, if you like, that you're not going to have war films about it in the same way as we had about The Great Escape last week. And I think we were talking last time about that idea of of feeling that you already know the narratives of the war, mm. whereas this, I think, is, is quite a, an unknown quantity for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, the, the only 
thing that I can think of, really, the bridge, bridge over the River Kwai, of course, the prisoner of war experience, uh, and all those thousands of, of men that were captured at Singapore, and um, particularly in Australia, that, that's still very well remembered. Uh, and maybe the novel, uh, Quartered Safe Out Here by George MacDonald Fraser, who served in Burma, famous for his Flashman series of novels. Um, but really, yeah, that it hasn't got that same uh, that same public awareness, public knowledge, despite the fact that it was this iconic battle at the time, incredibly brutal, incredibly dramatic, fought in the high remote hills and mountains of, of northeast India, brutal fighting in a very small space. I mean, in, in Kohima, you only had about two and a half thousand uh, British and Indian servicemen. Most of them weren't even frontline troops. They were kind of administrators and, and cooks brought in to try and hold back the Japanese. 15,000 Japanese attacked Kohima. So, you know, it's a really dramatic story of, of defence, last-ditch defence against this this mass of Japanese troops. Uh, and it came very close to falling, but the, the, the battle itself was fought in a tiny area, perhaps no more than the width of, the, of a tennis court, the famous tennis court in the district commissioner's garden in Kohima. Yeah, well, that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this cemetery, isn't it? I mean, a lot of our sites are unique, but uh, this one incorporates the battlefield features into it, including the traces of that very tennis court. Yeah, and it's a really remote area, really hard to get to. Um, and we're, in fact, we've got some images from the... CWGC archive in front of us, some watercolours that were that were drawn up by the architect, and you really get a feel for the landscape here. And you can see that the different levels that the cemetery's on, you can see it's almost a sequence of different little squares and rectangles with the trees all around, and you really get a feeling that, yeah, this is this is on the battlefield. But yeah, it's still a very remote area today, really hard to get to, particularly in Fal, uh, Manipur, very unstable part of the world, a lot of violence, a lot of instability. Uh, Kohima's a little bit easier to get to, but unfortunately, we weren't able to to, to travel there for this podcast but we've got a trick up our sleeve we are going to go to Norwich to the offices of Purcell the heritage consultancy to speak to someone who has been to Kohima and who knows the site from there. good afternoon all tickets rail cards please that's lovely thank you very much have a good day so we're just on the train to Norwich now looking at some of the pictures from our archive of the uh, cemetery I'm most taken with the uh, the picture of the Second Division Memorial, so that's the memorial that features the Kahima epitaph. But interesting sort of structure with this kind of rough-hewn rock and a uh, crucifix at the top. Um, interesting to think about how that fits into the cemetery, sort of context for it visually. Yeah, it's quite unusual to see a memorial like that. They, they are there, but in a commissioned cemetery it's quite unusual to have so many different memorials. And looking at the plan, fascinating to look at this architectural plan I mean it's got all the plots all the graves marked out and right in the middle look there you can see the there's the tennis court with the cross right on top of it So we've come into the Norwich Castle Study Centre and Shire Hall, um, where they have some of the uh, artefacts from the Royal Norfolk Regiment Museum. And one of them is a gun, a small artillery gun from the Battle of Kohima, a 70 millimeter howitzer, a little artillery piece that was captured during the battle. And remarkable to see it back here in the centre of Norwich. Mm, yeah, it's um, interesting to see something that obviously was a fearsome weapon of war at some point now uh, become a, a kind of trophy, if you like, a, a symbol, um, and particularly poignant to see it here. Of all places, it must have taken quite a lot of effort to bring it back, mm. I'd imagine, uh, dismantling it and uh, setting it up here. Um, but it's uh, great to see the sort of traces of Kohima, if you like, uh, much closer to home. Absolutely. And just around the corner, they've got the, the battle honours, the, the flags with all mm. the, the names of the, the famous battles that the regiment's taken part in. Uh, and of course, Kohima was one of those. Uh, it's up there. Uh, this gun 
one of those small traces of war, even though Kahima is very far away, here it is on the doorstep back home in Norwich. I'm Rowena Wood. I'm an associate at Purcell. I'm a heritage consultant, so I spend my time researching historic buildings and site, examining what's important about them and providing advice on how to look after them in the future. We flew to Dimapur, which is a, a small airport, and then from there we were picked up by a couple of uh, 4x4s that took us up to Kahima, which it's basically up up very steep hills, um, hairpin bend roads, the monsoons wash the roads away every year. So they just finished clearing the road of all the monsoon landslides from that year. So you had a, a sense of what to uh, expect, perhaps, in terms of the risks and mm. dangers and the effort of getting mm. there. Um, how did that compare to actually being in the cemetery itself, thinking particularly of Kahima? Did it meet your expectations? I imagine you would have looked at lots of pictures and things before you went, but being there, it must have been a, a different world. Yeah, I mean, Kahima is just stunning the photos don't do it justice the plans don't do it justice because it's just amazing the way that the the land has been used to create this series of terraces it sort of evolves as you around you as you proceed through the cemetery Mm. the other thing that makes kahima so extraordinary is it's setting the fact that you get these amazing views out to the hills which are covered in in sort of jungle vegetation. And the other thing that really struck me as I stood below, because it's it's massive, the Second Division Memorial, looking up at the epitaph, and the words are so familiar, that it struck me for the first time in a different way. Normally, uh, when I hear those words, I imagine them being said by comrades, you know, the, the soldiers that have fought saying them to to those who are going home but standing there it felt as though soldiers the ones who survived and those who hadn't were speaking through the centuries to me. So Kohima War Cemetery is a place that consciously evokes the battlefield you know the fact that the tennis court is preserved Mm -hmm. as part of the fabric of the of the of the environment there Uh, and being in that landscape seeing that that those hills knowing that you're there on the battlefield and having researched it so Mm. much before you went. um, How did it make you feel standing in that spot? It's such a small space. You know, I mean, a tennis court, if you're playing tennis, doesn't feel like necessarily (laughs) a small space. Um, But when you think of it as the distance between two armies, as it were, two uh, kind of fighting groups of men, it's no space Mm. at all. it doesn't come alive through the reading history books or looking at photos. It's all the other stuff that you can only experience being there that makes you realise that it must have been horrendous. Like, it's so challenging. Thinking about that um, wonderfully evocative description of the, the beauty of the site um, at Kohima, I was just wondering how it kind of compared for you with other places that you've uh, worked on in terms of uh, heritage conservation, um, what you think that site uh, has to offer us in terms of its its cultural or aesthetic value, its historic value. War cemeteries, I think, are quite different from a lot of other heritage mm. assets. But what I found particularly interesting about Kahima is 
the way that local that the local people value it and that reflects very much very different cultural experiences and understanding and values but what's also interesting about it is there's no hang-ups around the fact that oh well you know you could say this is a colonial place they don't see it as such partly because there are an awful lot of indian soldiers buried there but also because of the way they view the war or the battle of kahima the fact that they see it as the moment when the world came to kahima and also the moment that Kahima stepped into the modern world. You're an expert on the conservation of, of heritage sites. What does this place look like in, in 50 years, in 100 years' time? There are a lot of challenges for, for the cemetery, and some of those are fundamental ones. The fact it's so remote means that it's challenging to get equipment uh, and materials there, but more significant and more challenging still is getting the right skills there to do conservation work. Another major challenge is water. You know, the the CWGC uh, sites, as we were saying, the horticulture is so important. And to maintain that, you need water. Another fundamental challenge are the earthquakes and the landslides. And that's going to keep potentially changing um, the physical sort of shape and character of the site. There's also an issue with encroachment. Modernisation means that there's more road traffic and that the site is defined by roads on three sides now and there is a pressure to keep widening those roads and that means eating into the cemetery space. After the break, we'll find out more about the personal inscriptions of the Second World War and we'll speak to someone who's been to visit the battlefields to pay tribute to someone in her own family who took part in the campaign in Burma. What does it take to ensure those who died in the two world wars will never be forgotten? This June, discover the answer at the CWGC Experience a unique new visitor attraction that will shine a light on the work of the remarkable organisation at the heart of remembrance of the war dead, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. A trip to the battlefields of the Western Front is not complete without a visit to the CWGC experience. Inspired by the Kahima epitaph, I went to speak to one of our historians, Max Dutton, to learn more about the personal inscriptions on our headstones. Well, let me just uh, open up the personal inscription uh, Excel document that we've got. This has got all the all the inscriptions on that we have from the database. But we've got a few here actually that we've uh, that we've printed off that uh, are all about Kahima. For the Second World War we commemorate 600,000 service personnel um, and nearly 200,000 uh, of our headstones from that conflict bear a personal inscription. They are uh, so, so very emotive. I mean, if you take Kahima, for example, some some of the headstones in, in there are absolutely heartbreaking. Is there any difference between First World War and Second World War personal inscriptions? Did you find any sort of patterns? Yeah, we, we definitely did. So for the First World War, we often see examples of king and country and religious uh, I- inscriptions. And then the personal ones are, are slightly less 
uh, prevalent. But when we get to the Second World War, they they absolutely are um, very very uh, emotive. I mean, some some examples taken from Kahima. Um, we've got uh, on the on the grave of fusilier Harold Henthorpe, who was a, a Lancashire fusilier. Um, uh, his wife Georgina um, put on his headstone, "We planned a wonderful future, dear, only for it to end in a dream." You know, you read that or you see it on a headstone, it's just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And chances are she was never going to visit his grave out, out in Kahima. Yeah, distance is definitely something that we, mm. we, we see playing through. And it, it's really fascinating that when you look at um, graves in places like the Far East for the Second World War, people reference the fact that their loved ones were buried far off in, in foreign climes. So, for example, on the, uh, the, the grave of Private Albert Crump, um, who was in the Royal Berkshire Regiment, his parents decided to put on his grave... Oceans divide, but memory keeps you ever near. Or on the grave of Lance Corporal Arthur Watson of the Royal Norfolk Regiment. You are where I cannot see you, son, but always in my thoughts remembered. Yes, I'm never going to see you, and acknowledging that fact, but that we're not going to forget you. Mm. It, it's it's very emotive, these, these personal inscriptions. And the more you work with them, the harder it, it becomes, actually. You don't become mm. hardened to these PIs. But interestingly, um, there is an interplay between the First World War and the Second World War with personal inscriptions. Um, For the First World War, people often referenced Victorian literature. So Mm. people like Tennyson, for example, playing in Far Off Thou Art, But Ever Nigh, I Have Thee Still, and I Rejoice, for example, from from, from Tennyson. Um, And that's actually on the grave of a Second World War headstone in in Kahima. Um, But then for the for the Second World War, we often see First World War literary oh, examples okay. coming through. So, for example, um, one of the, the greatest parts of the Commission's early days, one of the greatest individuals who came through was Rudyard Kipling, the, mm. the uh, literary advisor to the War Graves Commission and poet of empire. And mm. on the grave in Kahima of Private Alfred Evans is Come Back, You British Soldier, Come Back to Mandalay which comes from, from Kipling's poem, poem Mandalay, and literature is definitely something that people people drew upon. Yeah, it's interesting to say that that idea that it's uh, an unprecedented kind of loss that's happening in the First World War and your um, modes for articulating that and who your literary precedents and forebears are going to be that are going to help you kind of express your grief um, would be harking back to, to Victorian poets. But as you say, by the time of the Second World War, you're looking at First World War writers and a, a kind of diversifying of voices. I suppose that can Contributes to the, the the more intensely personal nature of the Second World War inscriptions. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say per- intensely personal. This mm. this will, if nothing else gets you, this this will this will do it. So have a, have a have a look at this. So what we have here uh, is a page titled Form for Verification of Name and Other Particulars. So uh, in the commission we would call that the final verification form. So it's got details of the casualty here, um, Jeffrey Douglas Mitchell, uh, where they're buried, Kima Cemetery, and uh, the personal inscription, some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. So looking at some of the details of the family, there's something interesting here. Do you want to uh, tell me a bit more, Max? Yeah, absolutely. So this FV form, as we call them, or final verification form, tells a really heartbreaking tale because Jeffrey Mitchell, names of both parents, both deceased, name right. of widow, deceased, and relationship to the deceased of the person filling in this form or providing the details mm. for it is his daughter. Mm. But he was just 24 years old himself. So his daughter is an orphan, and she has to write this personal inscription for the grave of her father, who she presumably barely knew, without mm. the help of 
her mother or her grandparents on her father's side and write that for a headstone out in far off Kahima. Mm-hmm. And chances are she was never going to get to visit his grave. I miss uh, Judith Mitchell, her name. I wonder if she ever did make it to Kahima. To understand more about what it's like for descendants who do manage to visit this part of the world, I went to speak to author and journalist Annabel Venning, who's written a book about her family's experiences called To War with the Walkers. So my grandfather was Walter Walker, Walter Collier Walker, to give him his full name. Um, he uh, ended up as General Sir Walter Walker, but in the Second World War, um, he was a young officer. Um, in 1942, he was sent as a staff officer to join the staff of uh, Bill Slim in Burma. Uh, and at that point, they were retreating from Burma, and um, Walter caught up with Slim's headquarters um, around the uh, town of Yenongyang, I think that's how it's pronounced, um, which is where there were lots of oil fields and, the, and they were in the, the process of burning the, all the oil fields and oil equipment to deny them to the Japanese. Not fighting as such then, but it, it was very grueling. And by the time um, they got across the border into Assam, into, into Manipur, near Kahima, they, um, they were very bedraggled. Mm. Um, a lot of the headquarters staff... Uh, were sick um, you know the the army was in a pretty terrible state but Slim had, had kept it all together and you know, they had retreated but they hadn't they hadn't been captured he he was then appointed as second in command of 4th 8th Gurkhas who had been fighting at the Battle of Admin Box and Walter um, joined them shortly after that uh, just before they were then um, sort of transported uh to the plain of Imphal, where in 1944, where they then joined in the defence of Imphal, um, and then he he so he was a second in command there, and he wrote about that a bit about you know what it was like fighting in, in the hills around Imphal, where he had this very very high grass which made it very difficult. It was elephant grass, so it made it very difficult a to to get up the side of the hills because um, it's very slippery and this grass wrapped itself around your feet, and, and B, to see where the enemy were, because, you know, they could be really well hidden. And although um, there was now air supply, which is this great innovation, uh, the weather was often so bad that they couldn't get airdrops, so they'd be fighting on empty stomachs for days at a time. Um, and it was, yeah, it was pretty tough. From Kohima, they crossed back into Burma uh, to a place called Tamu, it was um and they went down and they covered most of this i think it's about 400 miles they covered, covered most of it on foot and from then on it was it was it was fighting patrols or battles sort of most of the way down burma and you knew your grandfather pretty well uh, yes. in later life um and after his death you went to visit the places where he'd fought yes. and what made you decide to go and do that so i'd read a lot about it and i'd read the accounts by other people who'd fought under him um, some of his officers but I couldn't quite picture it and I really wanted to, to see you know, the lay of the land to really see for myself you know, where he'd stood and what it had been like 
it was it was similar to how he described it and having looked at the maps and read all the stories it was great just to sort of be able to then place everything and you visited the commonwealth war graves commission cemetery and the memorial just outside uh, rangoon yes um how did it feel visiting that place seeing the graves and the, and the names of, of many of the men that, that your grandfather was served with and, and, and well that was it. that was very moving so at, after the battle of tangdu which he fought in um, May 1945, which was this crucial battle. So I'd read about it in his own words, and I'd visited. We visited the valley, and we saw where he'd had to send this young um, major to his, you know, to attack uphill this ridge that was very heavily defended by the Japanese. And in this chap, Mike Tiswell had been shot. He wasn't killed instantly, and as he was being stretchered off. Um, Walter, my grandfather, saw him and said, Mike, I'm so sorry. You're one of my most promising officers. And that night, he had to write the letter to Mike Tittle's mother back home in England and say, I'm so sorry, I had to send your boy to his death. And she wrote back a very nice letter and saying, I understand and I'm glad he died, mm. you know, fighting for his country. But then the following day, we drove to Rangoon, Yangon, and saw the Commonwealth War Graves Commission there and saw Mike Tidwell's name carved into one of the pillars there and saw, you know, the huge, huge number of graves of the other fallen in Burma, not just from 8th Gurkhas, but from all the other regiments and RAF. And, you know, just seeing the scale of the number of people who'd, who'd sacrificed their lives um, was you know, really moving. It was really moving that hear Annabelle speak about her experiences of visiting the cemetery. But I've been thinking, you know, hearing her and uh, Rowena earlier, in a sense, there's almost more power for me in not being able to go. Um, I know that sounds odd, but it's something about uh, how that battle perhaps retains a, a, a mythic kind of status for us, precisely because um, we're not familiar um, with the, the site itself. Um, but of course, that can also blind us perhaps to the reality of, of the brutality and the extent of the losses there on all sides. Yeah, it's, I, I guess it's quite hard to romanticise that kind of battle. You know, the, the, the battle itself, it's that idea of the kind of Spartans holding out against the masses. But actually, when you know anything about the battle, it's the brutality that, that you remember. And, you know, on the Japanese side as well, they, they marched in with 85,000 men and, and 53,000 were killed. Or missing, you know, huge losses, and it's only recently that that there's been any kind of you know rapprochement, and that, that the Japanese have been involved in the commemoration. So you know, who knows? Actually, maybe uh, with the passing of time, that will develop. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely think that there's that element of the comfort in knowing that there's something there, even if you can't visit, because of course, for most families with people buried there, that they wouldn't have been able to go and visit. Um, but there are those traces. You know, we saw in, in Norwich and there are other places around, certainly around Britain, the Kohima Barracks in York and so on, those those traces of, of that battle and of this cemetery. You know, maybe it's in family histories, family memory and conversations, but those traces are still there if you know where to look for them. Mm, it's almost, so with the Kohima epitaph, the... Um the sort of exhortation to go home and and tell the story, 
the rhetoric kind of stands in place of um, the actual action itself because there's an understanding that there won't actually be that many visitors who can go and then come back and tell that story. And so, as you say, it's all the more important for us to find those traces over here, those connections, those voices, uh, and share those stories and memories um, amongst families and communities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, we were remembering about Indian soldiers too. You know, this is a story that is an Indian story as much as it is a, a British story. Um, and I think it's important that we that we remember that actually that region has its own history and that this battle and this cemetery are a lasting legacy of, of that war in a, in, a, in a region that still has its its troubles today. Um, and that idea of, of liberation, you know, we've been talking a lot about what that means and, and unpacking that idea. Um, and I think it's really important for us to remember that liberation means something very different in this part of the world than it does in Europe. You know, in some ways, when you're looking at an imperial conflict, this is replacing one occupying force with another, you know, the British Empire. This is about Britain reclaiming imperial territories. And it's only many years later, in, in some cases, that, that these countries become independent. So, yeah, I think it's important that we, that we consider that aspect too. And I think Kohima War Cemetery, along with the cemeteries in Imphal, really uh, you know, are an important memento of those, of those years that had such a, a huge impact on Southeast Asia. Next time, we'll be looking at Monte Cassino, one of the most iconic battles of the Italian campaign, and thinking about the architectural legacies of our war cemeteries in Italy. The Legacy of Liberation podcast was presented by Lucy Kellett and Glyn Prussell. Our guests were Rowena Wood, Max Dutton and Annabelle Venning. The producer was Jack Sheeran. <laughs>